0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 59 of UConn 360, that's the only podcast in the history of human civilization to cover the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. It's a very special episode, a bittersweet episode, because it's our final episode with Maxine Filivong, our our colleague and esteemed friend, Maxine, how are you doing?
1: I'm feeling really sad today. Oh, this is. <laughs> I had a lot of fun on this podcast. I think I learned a lot from it too. It definitely taught me like what I wanted to do further in life. And it's bittersweet to be graduating too. During this time, I have my graduation robes. I know the podcast people can see it, but Aww. I have my graduation robes
2: hanging. Oh yeah, yes, I didn't notice. Up.
1: I got it. Two days before I got in the mail. Two days before you can't get cancelled.
2: Well, there should be a there should be a ceremony in the fall. We hope.
1: I, I hope so. Um, but now it's gonna be hanging for the next week as I go through finals. Um, and it also cost sixty dollars, so I'm gonna be wearing it for this whole week.
2: <laughs> really Wear it. Wear it while you eat your cereal in the morning. And yeah, that's... It's good that's good inspo. It's like a, a yeah. real-life uh, inspiration board there.
1: Yeah, I, it's kind of sentimental to me right now. Yeah, I've, I've been feeling bittersweet about this. I don't want to go, especially right now, <laughs> during this climate, but I'm, I'm hopeful for what's going to happen next.
2: What were some of your favorite kind of moments and memories of Yukon?
1: Man, to put you right on the spot. I don't think I can share those on the podcast.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like Julie's stories.
2: Yeah. (laughs) You had a good time. I had a a fun time. Very nice. Yeah. We're very very, um, grateful that we had you and we're very sad that you're leaving, but hopefully you won't go too far and you can, you know, send us a, critiques (laughs) Critiques future <laughs> years.
0: Yeah, listeners should know that uh, um, after this episode, uh, things are going to go way downhill for us. Without Maxine, it's going to get a lot worse.
2: Oh,
1: who's going to be editing the podcast now? Who's who's taking it's, on the role? Yes, it'll be us again.
0: <laughs> well, well, it's we'll been figure great it having out. you as a, as a colleague. Glad to hear that the podcast was helpful to you, and we know you're going to do great things. We look forward to watching from the sidelines and uh, joining. Maxine uh, and I, uh, uh, my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. Hello. And Ken Best.
3: Um, behind the microphone.
0: The gang is all here for episode 59, and uh, it's an exciting episode. I would say it's a, maybe a topical episode of historic interest. Not really sure how to go into that. Before we go into that, why don't we talk about some interesting things that have been happening at UConn that are not related to the plague?
2: Yeah, you will notice already this uh, this episode has been way less... <laughs> quarantine focused. We're settling into our new normal, as it were. I just wanted to note that, you know, there are a ton of great stories still coming in on UConn Today about all the things people in UConn Nation are doing to support uh, all the COVID response efforts. But there's also a lot of kind of regular UConn stuff going on too. One headline that caught my eye today was that our German studies program was ranked the number four program in the country by the Chronicle of Higher Ed that uh, confers a bachelor's degree in the German language, literature, and linguistics. We have our really cool uh, partnership with Connecticut's German partner state, which I didn't know was a thing, but apparently we have a German partner state. It's called, I'm not, I don't speak German, but Baden-Württemberg, maybe?
3: Baden-Württemberg? Uh, and Baden-Württemberg?
2: That sounds better. They have generally supported UConn students in the Eurotech program, where they get a dual degree in engineering and German studies, and then the Eurobiz program, where they get a dual degree in business and German studies, which is really neat. So congratulations to our German studies program.
0: It is very cool. You can read about that on UConn Today, along with other great stories, many of which are about the plague, but kind of a happy way. There was a neat story about a a UConn Stanford student who uh, has his own uh, fashion business, and he's been making... Uh, masks. We've made a couple hundred masks for people in the uh, Stanford area, like at a, a local nursing home, and a hospital. And so neat things like that. Yeah. Not, not all doom and gloom. That'll wow. come in the fall.
2: Really good work everybody's <laughs> doing, pulling together.
0: And now, Ken, you've got a story for us. It is Not a, about the plague, no, not about no, the pandemic. No,
3: but it, it does have some historic relevance today, actually, as we are recording. It was 50 years ago today that the Kent State shootings took place connected to the protests against the war in Vietnam, which was a divisive event in the history of the United States. That took place during, and here I start to date myself, my freshman year in college that spring. We went past failed grades as many schools like UConn did all over the country that spring. And it's, a, it's come up as a reference point. Not to bring it back to the pandemic, but because of the number of deaths in the United States has surpassed the casualties in war in Vietnam uh, with the number of soldiers killed. So a lot of folks are having it brought back right now. We do have a professor, Nuan Tran, who is a historian. She is of Vietnam American heritage, and she's been studying this whole situation from the origin origins of the war uh, back in the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, Most people look at that history as uh, the United States trying to prevent the influence of communist rule on the Southeast Asian Peninsula. It was uh, much more than that. And uh, Professor Tran has been looking into this whole uh, history using documents from the Vietnamese government, which were made available after the war was over, after a certain amount of time passed. And so she has been looking into this. She has been writing a book, and we had a very interesting discussion a couple of weeks ago. I asked her how she became interested in studying about the politics of South Vietnam.
4: I grew up Vietnamese American in the United States. My parents grew up in South Vietnam, and they talked a lot about South Vietnam when I was a kid. And one of the things that really struck me was that the way they talked about it was really different from the way I heard Americans talking about it both my teachers in the classroom and in, in the popular media. So I was very interested in how to understand this from a Vietnamese perspective. Vietnamese people tend to think of themselves as the main characters in their story, just like everyone else in the world. And I wanted to understand this experience and how it would look if we looked at Vietnamese people as the main character. But what I really wanted to understand was what people meant by the word democracy. So if you go back to the scholarship the contemporary scholarship, or a lot of it is more journalism um, from the 50s and 60s, this is one of the buzzwords that people were using. Americans and Westerners in general were debating how democratic was this regime? Was it not very democratic? If it's not democratic, what does that say about, what are the implications for American foreign policy? And I want to understand how Vietnamese people understood democracy and what they meant by it. It's also informed by my own experience growing up with Vietnamese Americans who often seem to use the word democracy in very different ways. And so I was interested in how these different political leaders and political factions in South Vietnam understood democracy, how they debated with each other about what democracy meant, and to understand how this was a word and a concept that had real meaning for for them. And it wasn't something just imposed from the outside.
3: One of the things that... Uh, interesting and uh, new is the access that you have to the actual documents from that time period and your thesis of what you describe as uh, anti-communist nationalism. Uh, Could you explain that and what you've discovered?
4: If you read the dominant scholarship about Vietnam, it mainly argues that the anti-colonial nationalist movement against French colonialism led to communism, which led to the what became the North Vietnamese state, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, and eventually the post-war socialist Republic of Vietnam. But if you read the memoirs by Vietnamese from the RVN, who are anti-communist, they're going to give a very different narrative. For them, Nationalism led to them naturally, and I think it 's kind of, sort of predictable that people would feel this way right it's not um, somehow earth shattering but what 's interesting is just is to look at that narrative and how It reflects a particular historical experience and particular political trends. So that's how I arrived at this idea of anti-communist nationalism, that this is how many of these um, political leaders and groups thought of themselves.
3: You have access to the archives that previously were, were not necessarily being used by those writing histories. What did you find in the archives that helped you to understand better what actually happened?
4: So there's two, kind of two things I would kind of really um, talk about. One is the archives in, in Saigon, and one is the library. What's really helpful about the archives is it gives us internal documents, mostly within the office of the president, of Ngo Dinh Yim's presidency. And what that really gives us access to is the thinking behind the policies that Ngo Dinh Yim implemented. So, for example, a, most of the scholarship up until the opening of the Vietnamese archives— Argued based on American scholarship that Ngorongim took certain actions often because the Americans told them to, often because of outside influences. And one of the reasons why they said that was because they didn't have access to documents that gave insight into the internal workings of the government. But when you find documents for the internal workings of the government, what you realize is that Ngorongim had a certain agenda, his advisors had certain agendas, and their policies that they came up with often reflected that as much as any conversations they had with the Americans.
3: And just for those who may be listening who don't know the process of research and using primary documentation rather than secondary documentation, much as in the presidential libraries here in the United States and and the Library of Congress where there are the original documents drafted and written by politicians and aides, you're getting the thought process In writing, so that you can then better understand what was going on rather than just read a newspaper report about it.
4: One of the things I find very, very useful. And these are hard to find, but when you can find them, they're very great, are policy papers or position papers, papers that kind of lay out, here's the policy we should adopt and here's why. And those are really helpful because they give us insight into the policies that we know about because often these policies are implemented publicly, but the reasoning behind them is something that takes place behind closed doors. And not. And then the Americans don't necessarily have access to that entire thought process because in the American archives we'll have – oh, the ambassador spoke to one member of the cabinet today, and this is that what that person said. Okay, the ambassador talked to someone else two weeks later. So we get snapshots, but we don't get this coherent picture. So that's one thing that's really useful about the archives. The main research library in Saigon was the former National Library of South Vietnam. It houses probably the world's largest collection of South Vietnamese periodicals and newspapers. And what's really great about that, even though those are public, they're not an inside picture, but what's great about that is that, especially for the early period of Ngo Dinh Yim's rule— there are different political groups which have their own newspapers so you can see a political debate taking place in public which is something that you really don't have access to from just american archives
3: probably misunderstood by most people thinking that there was just one line of thinking in the creation of policy rather than good debate among factions within a party or a government trying to do what happens in the Senate and the Congress here, uh, both sides on opposite ends and trying to come together in the middle.
4: It was a little more authoritarian than that. But the fact that, but, but what's interesting is that there are actually a range of ideas and opinions, and this is far richer and for, far more diverse than you would know from looking at, at American documents. I mean, I think one of the problems actually is that. In, in the 1954 to 1956 period, as far as I can tell, I think people in the American embassy are not paying very close attention to daily newspapers that are published in Saigon.
3: In your proposal for the research that you're doing, you, you sort of begin with the CIA uh, officer who is newly arrived and doesn't speak Vietnamese, doesn't speak French very well. He's sort of in a stranger in a strange land trying to figure out what the heck is going <laughs> on. And he's there representing the United States government trying to get information to be sent back so that the government can understand what's actually happening. And this is, as I recall, on the the cusp of the the end of the French involvement Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the beginning of the American involvement, which was actually during the Eisenhower administration. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned that you were looking at policy papers and you see the the discussion and the arguments back and forth. What may have surprised you about what you saw, knowing what you knew before you were able to get into the, the archives?
4: I think one of the things that really surprised me was the... Thinking behind what became the plebiscite of in October nineteen fifty-five against Chief of State Bao Dai, who was a former emperor. Now, from the American documents and just from the scholarship, we know that Noden Yim made a decision to carry out this plebiscite that was rigged in order to overthrow the chief of state who had appointed him and to make himself the next leader. But what has never been clear to me is a thinking that went on behind that. Until now, even scholars who use Vietnamese language sources often use public sources. So we know a lot about the message that the regime was trying to send with its get out the vote efforts or with its propaganda. But we don't really know why they chose plebiscite versus any other way of trying to overthrow one person and installing another person. And what was really interesting to me was that the position paper argued that We need to start a constitutional process and we need to start it with a plebiscite on the head of state or the head of government rather than a constituent election for an assembly to write a constitution. So, there was so, if you think about it what 's really interesting, there are legal arguments you know people are make are thinking about what this means in a larger picture and not thinking, "Well, we just want to overthrow this guy and install another person." The complexity of this thinking was something that i i didn 't necessarily anticipate.
3: Scholars tend to focus on one time period or one mm-hmm. figure in in a historic context that provides. Uh, great insight into that particular area. But as you say, you're covering a a time period that leads up to a critical point, 1963, after the assassination of John Kennedy and the escalation of the war since then. Where will you continue to to study? Will you just dig, dig deeper into this time period? Or will you try to extend it to get further context for what happened before?
4: Uh, I anticipate my next project will also be roughly about this time period, but it will examine it from a different perspective or a different aspect of it. So this book is about the relationship between different anti-communist nationalists and their debate over what the South Vietnamese government should look like. My next project will be about the relationship between anti-communists and communists. I'm I'm particularly interested in the government's repression of communists in South Vietnam and anti-communism more generally in literature and art and and politics. What's
3: a bit different about this? book project is that it was an extension of her uh, graduate work, as many books are when uh, young scholars start uh, writing. She started working on this when she got to UConn as a history professor, and she was a bit surprised at how long it took uh, to do this work, as many people are surprised. Uh, When we spoke a few weeks ago, uh, she was finalizing corrections to the manuscript and is scheduled to come out next year, sometime in the spring or in the summer.
2: She was very engaging. That was a great interview.
3: Yes. It's, it's, it's a, a very interesting historic moment that is still really affecting what goes on in this country uh, many years later.
0: Mm-hmm. That was very interesting. That was a great interview. And um, what a perfect segue for Tom's History Corner because as we record this, it is May 4th, which is the 50th anniversary, as Ken noted, of the Kent State shootings. But uh, there was also mm-hmm. a... Uh, outpouring of anger and protest around the country following the Kent State shootings at college campuses, including the University of Connecticut, And uh, I got interested in this back in March when the university switched to online classes and announced there would not be a commencement ceremony. Sorry, Maxine, Uh, because I wondered, and we did an episode on this that they, in fact, did not have uh, ceremonies in 1911, 1914, but I at first assumed they didn't have it in 1970 because a number of universities around the country did not have graduation ceremonies in 1970 because of the uh, outpouring of protest. However, it wasn't the case at UConn, as we'll explore in uh, this Tom's History Corner. So uh, on, on May 4th, 1970, the reaction was sort of uh, immediate. There was a, a mass meeting on campus where a lot of student organizations, including the Student Senate, called for student strike, meaning nobody would go to class. There was a national student strike that was being coordinated and then had uh, the demands that the release of all political prisoners, the immediate with the immediate withdrawal of U.S. forces from Southeast Asia, and the abolition of ROTC and all defense research in university campuses. Worth noting that uh, UConn had very little influence over U.S. military policy in Southeast Asia or political prisoners. But still, these were part of the demands. And that night, there was a candlelit rally that uh, drew more than 3,000 people Hmm. who began chanting, shut it down. The next day, May 5th, the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences faculty uh, voted to suspend classes for the remainder of the semester. Wow. And finals would only be on material that had been covered up to May 4th. And remember, this is back when the uh, semester went into June. So there's still actually a lot of class time left. There was a, uh, a rally for the strike on May 7th. It was a Thursday. More than 5,000 people gathered in the Student Union Quad to hear uh, speakers. And then after the rally, groups of demonstrators went through the classroom buildings, sort of disrupting any classes that were still being held.
2: Oh, wow. It's kind of and, crazy. Uh,
0: yeah. And uh, one such class <clears throat> was, was being taught by Professor Charles Waring, chemistry professor whose name now adorns the chemistry building on campus right across from our office. And uh, he, uh, Charles Waring was a very conservative member of the faculty. He was the faculty advisor for the Young Americans for Freedom, which was a very conservative group. Mm-hmm. And he obviously refused to participate in the strike. Uh, a group of about two dozen demonstrators showed up in his classroom and started chanting slogans. He, uh, he, <laughs> he grabbed a beaker of an unknown chemical substance. Oh, no. And uh, brandished it at the students like he was going to throw it on them. <laughs> <sighs> they retreated and gathered more demonstrators. And there were about, uh, about 300 demonstrators then showed up at, at his lab. He had, he had like locked the doors and they were like demanding that he come out. Wow. And then, uh, the, uh, Dean of CLAS at the time, uh, Kenneth Wilson actually came and apparently defused the whole situation.
2: Good for Kenneth Wilson. So
0: good, good job, Dean Wilson. And, uh, but that, that uh, uh, graduation went on the following month, early June, with uh, a rec- then record number of 3,600 people receiving degrees. So uh, that, was, that was pretty much it. I, I do note that um, only a month later, uh, the uh, incident had, I guess maybe feelings had cooled a little bit because there was an ad in the uh, Daily Campus uh, graduation edition that uh, the, all the ads said it was type, uh, big type. It said, riot, insurrection, love, grades, turmoil, R-O-T-C. Draft. Pot. Solve your problems over a delicious steak dinner at Bonanza Sirloin Pit in the Willamannock Shopping Plaza.
2: What? Are you kidding?
0: Nope. Uh, That's
2: eye-catching.
3: I must say, Bonanza was the place to go throughout the state because we had one down in Bridgeport and that was where we had Sunday dinner because they didn't serve Sunday dinner in the dining hall back then. Oh
2: my gosh. I feel like that's today when like Sharman tries to wade in on like some, you know, big tragedy on Twitter and be like, <laughs> just buy our toilet paper. That's crazy. So I, I was listening, but what happened to the classes, that kept going. Like, did they have to stop? Like, Waring's class.
0: Actually, um, some of the classes went on a schedule, but uh, the administration endorsed that finals could only be on material that was up to me. That it. was car- so.
2: Did did students stop going?
0: A lot of students partly? stopped go to class.
2: Wow. Yeah. But, then but not all.
0: Not all. The campus was divided, as was the country.
2: Very interesting.
0: And of course, uh, this year there's a record number of people getting uh, their their diplomas too. It's of all degrees, graduate, um, undergraduate, and professional students, uh, eight thousand nine hundred twelve.
2: Wow.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's the uh, old history corner. All right, well, on that uh, happy note, that does it for this week, this installment of UConn 360. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, you can follow us uh, on Twitter at UConn Podcast. You can check out at main underscore old, uh, which has some delightful old photos of UConn gone by. I'll put up some photos of the uh, protests in 1970. After Kent State, Maxine, where can people follow you?
1: For the last time, you can follow me on Twitter at MaxineFillivong, LinkedIn, (laughs) Philavong, Instagram, also Maxine.Fillivong, but I'm on all social media. You can type in my name and you can find me.
0: Julie?
1: I'm at
2: Julie Bartuca on Twitter.
0: And Ken, you still haven't gotten a TikTok up and running, which I'm-
2: Guys, I forgot to tell you, I learned the savage dance.
1: I did it. I need it did it. to see it. I need to see it so bad.
2: <laughs> if you promise not to send it to anyone else, I will send you the video. I-,
3: I think it needs to be on the Yukon 360 site.
2: Nope. I will send it to Maxine only. I sent it to my Yukon friends because they were some of them were doing it as well. And I. it was a really good workout. I spent like an hour practicing and took a lot of videos of myself, made a TikTok account just so I could do it. <laughs> Did not put it public, just put it private. Yeah, I did the savage dance, you guys. Well, you can That's find
3: awesome. me, you, you can still find me at today.yukon.edu because Mr. Breen has uh, been posting my writings faithfully sure. as they managed to get in. One of which will be about the return of uh, the, the regular irregular programming at WHUS, UConn's Sound Alternative at 917FM, streaming online at WHUS.org. Saturdays 3 to 6, actually my old time slot from Bridgeport yeah. in the old days of WPKN. Same time, same, not same station, however. I pre-recorded here from the Wall of Sound studio that only the folks on this uh, Zoom can see right now. And uh, that's been going pretty well. Although I did forget to take out a glitch last week, which I li- heard when I was listening to the to the show on Saturday. It just, you know, it happens. It's live radio, even though it's edited. Yeah.
0: And I think everyone's uh, I think everyone's grading on a curve for stuff done during the pandemic anyway.
2: I know. Think about even like the the real TV shows are doing this. One of the I watched Jesus and Miro on Showtime and sometimes they like cut out and it's like, well, they're using Zoom to do interviews.
0: I listen to NPR every day and like at least once per program, someone just cuts out.
2: Yeah, it's, it's happening right now.
3: Yeah, you cut out on us. A little
2: while I do, <laughs> we lost you entirely. All uh, right, congrats to all the graduates and Maxine, especially. We will miss you so much. I will yes. miss you guys. She, too. she
3: has set a standard for future uh, podcast interns.
2: Seriously, we'll Agreed. constantly
0: remind whoever they are of that,
2: too. <laughs> You're, You're not, not Maxine, Maxine <laughs> <laughs> would have done.
0: Yeah.
2: You never did the surprise.
3: I played the pop and circumstance at the beginning. When? You weren't listening?
2: I didn't hear it. Did you all hear it?
3: I didn't hear it. No. Well, I played
1: it. (laughs) Play it again.
2: I think it just, it probably just went into your mixer and we didn't hear it. When did you play it?
3: You can't hear that? Nope.
2: It's going into your mixer. All
3: right. Well, I'm sorry. It's it didn't. When it you didn't send happen. us the
2: recording, then we'll when you ready. send, you're gonna, you're file.
3: gonna hear it. It Still went hear? up and down. And I couldn't figure out how to get it up and down the right way. So you're gonna. I don't know how to. I don't know how to do that.
2: I was like waiting for it. I'm like, when's he gonna do that? Okay. Wait a
3: second. Wait a second.
2: Oops. Oh, you're trying to put it from here.
3: No, I'm, I, I'm, I grabbed the wrong. Uh,
0: uh, well, this way guys... it, really, it really will be a surprise.
2: It will. Do <laughs> yeah. you guys listen to Conan's podcast at all? Conan yeah. O'Brien? I started he, did, to it. he put in, like, all of him. They put in, like, all of him trying to figure out, like, how to connect. It was hysterical. I love that podcast. <laughs> He's so good. Now we can. A little. I
1: can faintly
2: hear. <laughs> if I strain really hard. <laughs> Oh, you're a technological wizard. Well, you know, (laughs) stuff happens. It's live
3: radio.